Hey folks, welcome to the 168th Dark Horse podcast live stream with me, Dr. Brett Weinstein. This is Dr. Heather Hying. And, and we are ready. I don't know about that. Our but, producer uh, does not think we're ready, but we are ready. In light of all that has taken place in our lives this week, we are shockingly ready. Let's put it that mm, way. This is true. This is true. Yes, a lot of things. Including, I spent several days looking like uh, the Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. Really? Yeah. You, you weren't here, so I wasn't and here, you didn't but... sound like you looked like that on the phone. Oh my so god! I did not know. So I mean, this I, I just got so puffy, and I was trying not to be vain about it, and I didn't say anything to anyone I was meeting, and I was like, "Wow, I look ridiculous." And I saw my amazing osteopath yesterday. He was like, "Oh man, you've got some blockages," and just drained away there was fluid caught up there in the tissues ah, uh, so yeah re remarkable remarkable that, that sort of thing can happen to a person yeah physiology is uh surprisingly complex yeah the diagrams in the uh the intro textbook they just don't do it justice they really don't in part because they're you know diagrams i guess i guess that's kind of it static 2d doesn't quite i mean physiology is intrinsically dynamic anatomy also but less so Oh, but physiology is like the, the dynamic um, downstream stuff associated that is that is built on the foundation of anatomy. Not only that, yeah. but um, inherently the most complex stuff in the universe is the biology. And in order to get it simple enough to get you to understand anything new, mm -hmm. they have to purge so much of the complexity that it uh, creates a false impression inherently. Mm -hmm. I've always thought this was a fascinating defect in our cognitive model of neurons because the mm. number of dendrites that connect them to other neurons is spectacularly large, often in the thousands. Right. And yet, in order to see the picture of the neurons so you can understand how the signals come in, you know, it's eight. Right. Uh, yeah. It's like you know, one input and eight outputs. Like, oh, that could be thousands. Yeah. You could be off by orders of magnitude, it, which, which then takes you puts you off in terms of imagining what kind of emergent properties are possible and what level of complexity is possible yeah it uh, it does not properly represent the system mm -hmm. all right let us uh start with logistics well so we're gonna today we're gonna talk a little bit about um thomas soul and you're gonna come back to the topic of ai a bit and we're gonna finish the hour by talking or the hour two hours whatever it is by talking a little bit about penises Penai, I think. Or not Brunei. All right. Peens. I, I was... As in hemi-peens. Right. Or ball-peens. Hammers. You know, as a woman, which I am, <laughs> I don't identify as one, I just am one. And you identify as one. I, I would never have introduced ball-peen hammers into a discussion of penises. Yeah. Wouldn't have done it. You doesn't gotta... seem safe. Doesn't seem kind. <laughs> Just saying. If you were going to get hit with a kind of hammer, actually, a ball peen hammer would be, uh, it's not good, but it's definitely. I just, for the record, I did not introduce the idea of hitting, of hammers, of hand tools at all. All right. In the, nope. For the not, record, nope, I regret having introduced any of these topics into the discussion that you were attempting to seed. So, yes, I, uh, I seed. seed control. Oh, wow. Different seed. Okay. Don't tell me they're spelled differently. So differently. Are they? Yes. <laughs> oh, all right. I was, um, you know, today years old when I learned that they were spelled differently. Mm -hmm. yep. Yes. And, and yes. Okay. 
So all of that is is yet to come. Uh, but first, we follow these live streams mostly. Uh, but today we are going to be following this live stream with a live Q&A. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Next week, we will not be having a Q&A. And the week after that, we're actually going to be off entirely. So this is your last chance to ask questions for the live Q&A for three weeks, I guess. Uh, and, um, and do so if you have questions for us. Again, at darkhorsesubmissions.com. Uh, please consider checking out my weekly writing at Natural Selections. This week, I did not update my notes here. I wrote about the sleep of seals, which I will just uh, drop this little tantalizing nugget is how I ended up wanting to talk about penises today. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right. The yeah. sleep of seals. You know, the seals sleep with the fishes. Uh, they do. As and they do are we. Fishes, but... mm. Yes, true. Mm -hmm. All right. Now this has gotten suddenly so phylogenetic that people are uh, changing are the channel. Are leaving in droves. Yes. yes, yes, yes. Okay, so we also have a store. Uh, it is a store dot dark. Yes, please show it and tell me what the URL is because I always forget. Store dot darkhorsepodcast dot org. Uh, the store is both run by and the print shop is owned and run by this wonderful couple. Uh, in the middle of the country, and uh, they have put one of the newer products um, is they put together a pin-on button set. You get these 12, 12 little buttons for only ten bucks, and it's some of our some of our best, our most popular visuals. So these look great. I haven't seen them yet, but um, they cool. look great. Cool. And uh, if I may uh, remind us of a conversation we discussed before, the dark horse pin is an excellent way of subtly broadcasting to other people that you might be wrong, but you're not crazy. <laughs> and if people who might be wrong but are not crazy were to find each other and have conversations, it might make the world a better place. It might. It might. Uh, so, indeed. Okay, you can take that down now if you like. Um, we've got, of course, Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which there are signed copies available at Darvel's here in the San Juans on Orcas. Uh, or you can get it anywhere books are sold unsigned. And we are supported by you, our audience, for whom we are eternally grateful. We appreciate you subscribing to the channel. Channels. We're here on YouTube. We're on Odyssey. We've got clips channels as well, Dark Horse Podcast Clips. Please subscribe, like, share, and... Um, you can also support us by joining either of our Patreons. Brett had one of his Patreon conversations this morning, and you can have another one tomorrow. Yes. And the, uh, I assume it, as always, went very well and interesting. Fantastic. Places. They are always surprising, and um, uh, I love meeting the new people who show up. There's mm -hmm. longstanding folks who've been there for years, and anyway, it's a, it's a very interesting experiment in gathering people uh, around loosely shared beliefs and then having vigorous conversations over what we differ and where we're where we're aligned anyway it's very good stuff a group of people who are willing to be wrong but aren't crazy yes willing to be wrong mm -hmm. but not crazy yeah that's awesome and we had our um private q a um associated with my patreon last last weekend and those are always uh, fun as well so uh, consider joining us there on either of our Patreons. You also get access to our Discord server where there are always people talking um, in ways that suggest that once again, willing to be wrong, not crazy. Um, so check that out. Check any of those things out. And of course, we have sponsors to whom we are also very, very grateful. For whom we are grateful. We pick and choose our um, the organizations with which we affiliate uh, carefully. And this week, as always, we have three. It's Seed, American Hartford Gold, and Mind Bloom. And without further ado, let us do these ads. There's a little bit of a do. Yeah, it got done, though. 
What is a do? Uh, it's just Shakespeare for do. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna be ending. I was gonna quote Shakespeare, but I think this is the wrong spot. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> so, our first sponsor this week is Seed, a probiotic that actually works. Your gut and your immune system work together, coordinating your body's response to the world, both around and within you. Seed helps improve the health of your gut microbiome, which means that it supports you becoming healthier overall. Once you decide to take Seed, though, how will you remember to do so? Try habit stacking. Build a major habit by starting small. For instance, I habit stack by keeping a sentence a day journal by the side of my bed. I see it every night. It's a low bar to write just a single sentence. I've been doing this for years at this point, and I've got an interesting accumulating record of something from every day for the last several years uh, that struck me. Similarly, if you want to habit stack and get in the habit of taking an actually truly efficacious uh, probiotic, if you take seed first thing in the morning, leave the jar on the counter, for instance, each night. So it's the first thing you see when you get up. But why would you want to? Well, Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic is a plant-based prebiotic and probiotic with 24 strains that have been clinically or scientifically studied for their benefits. 16 of those 24 strains are specifically geared toward digestive health, as you would expect from a probiotic. Four of the 24 probiotic strains are known to promote healthy skin. Your skin, like your gut, has its own microbiome, and, and Seed therefore supports both gut and skin health. Seed is also free from 14 major classes of allergens, including but not limited to sugar, animal products, soy, gluten, peanut, glyphosate, dairy, shellfish, and corn. And Seed is basically double-hulled with its capsule-in-capsule design. It is engineered to maintain viability through your digestive tract until it reaches your colon where you want it. And the same design also makes it resistant to oxygen, moisture, and heat, meaning that unlike many uh, probiotics, no refrigeration is necessary. It's easy to travel with. You don't have to find a refrigerator as soon as you land or whatever. So you take two capsules once a day on an empty stomach. Could be the first thing in the morning, 30 minutes before your first meal, or two hours after your last meal. Seed's daily symbiotic, that's S-Y-N, biotic, supports gut, skin, and heart health and micronutrient synthesis. And we have heard from several people who have used seed and report improvements to their digestive function in 24 to 48 hours. And we both use it and, uh, and really like it a lot. So start a new healthy habit today. Visit seed.com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to redeem 25% off your first month of Seed's DS01 Daily Symbiotic. That's seed.com, S-E-E-D dot com, not C-E-D-E. That's seed, S-E-E-D, mm. mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as an interseed, right? I know. Okay, now I'm being confusing. That's seed.com, S-E-E-D dot com slash darkhorse and use code darkhorse to get 25% off your first month. Did you know that without skin, podcasting would be impossible? Amazing. How about and chemistry? That skin too, itself would be a, impossible. Oh, good. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now this is, I can't say meta anymore. We can't no. say Trump and we can't say meta. Anything else you want to take out of the uh, large language model that mm-hmm. uh, most of us use to uh, communicate? Woman. That one I still use. Mm. Oh, well, but you also say all these other things, don't you? Oh, that is true. That yeah. is true. Mm-hmm. But you're not supposed to. Not supposed to. That's kind of my thing. I know. Okay. This episode is also sponsored by American Hartford Gold. If you listen to Dark Horse, then you likely know just how incompetent and unstable many of our institutions are becoming. Inflation is at its highest level in 40 years. Interest rates are sky high. We are caught between runaway inflation and a recession. And our leaders are increasingly nonsensical. All of this threatens businesses, jobs, and retirement funds. Finding ways to secure your nest egg and insulate your wealth is more important than ever, and adding precious metals to your assets is a great way to stabilize your investments and protect yourself financially. American Heart for Gold is a precious metals dealer that can help you do just that. 
American Hartford Gold helps individuals and families protect their wealth by diversifying with precious metals. They make it simple and easy to protect your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. They are the highest rated firm in the country with an A-plus rating from the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. And if you call them right now, they will give you $5,000, nope, they will give you up to $5,000 of free silver on your first qualifying order. Contact them today by visiting the link in the episode description, it's already there in the show notes, or call 866-828-1117, that's 866-828-1117, or text DARKHORSE to 998899. Once again, to reach American Hartford Gold, call 866-828-1117, check out the link in the show notes already, or text DARKHORSE to 998899. Cover your assets in metals. <laughs> All right. Awesome. Uh, our final sponsor this week is Mindbloom. Mindbloom is the leader in at-home ketamine therapy, offering a combination of scientifically robust medicine with clinically guided support for people looking to improve their mental health and well-being. If you or someone you love is struggling with mental health issues, those issues may loom large in your life. There is no one-size-fits-all solution, but you know that you or your loved one needs something that will help achieve a real and lasting breakthrough. Maybe it's time for you to check out a guided ketamine therapy program from Mindbloom. Mindbloom could be your next and most successful chapter in mental health and well-being. Mindbloom connects patients to licensed psych uh, psychiatric clinicians to help them achieve better outcomes with lower cost, greater convenience, and an artfully crafted experience. To begin, take Mindbloom's online assessment and schedule a video consult with licensed clinician to determine if Mindbloom is right for you. If approved, you'll discuss your health history and goals for mental health treatment with your clinician to tailor your Mindbloom regimen. Mindbloom will send you a kit in the mail complete with medicine, treatment materials, and tips for getting the most out of your experience. After only four sessions, 89% of Mindbloom clients reported improvements in their symptoms of depression and anxiety. Reports one client on their site, I thought I was broken. Now, the light inside me is growing stronger every day. Let Mindbloom guide you into a better chapter of mental health and well-being. Right now, Mindbloom is offering our listeners $100 off your first six-session program when you sign up at mindbloom.com darkhorse and use the promo code darkhorse at checkout. Go to mindbloom.com slash darkhorse, M-I-N-D-B-L-O-O-M dot com slash darkhorse. Use the promo code darkhorse for $100 off your first six-session program today. That's mindbloom.com slash darkhorse, promo code darkhorse. Darkhorse starts to sound ridiculous on the tongue after you say it that many times. You know, it? it's funny. I have this uh, as a, uh, a lifelong uh, recovering dyslexic or whatever the hell I am. Every time I read something new out loud, there is a kind of terror mm -hmm. that I will lose my access to whatever mental processing equipment it is that allows a person to read, and I suddenly will be staring at a bunch of letters and not know how to string them together, and it only rarely happens. Well, I think in order to call yourself recovering, you need to know how long it's been since you've just dyslexed. Mm. So I'm not sure you count as recovering. No, I'm, no. I'm planning to recover. Let's oh, put it that way. Okay. Well, good luck with that. Thank you. All right. Um, right now, as as we speak, as as we live and breathe, uh, midday Saturday, April first, um, the hashtag boycott sixty minutes is trending on Twitter. And I saw this 
Uh, also, Leslie Stahl is twending. twending. It's twending on Twitter. <laughs> um, that was Barbara Walters intruding on the Leslie Stahl discussion. That's right. Uh, Leslie Stahl is also trending on Twitter, and she's, of course, one of the hosts of uh, 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes being this long-running, uh, hour-long show on Sunday evenings on CBS that, before podcasts became a thing, was kind of the longest form uh, visual media way that you ended up with with stories uh, with interviews like it like you know they're not that long but it was really substantial uh, i used to i used to watch it uh, regularly when yeah. i was a kid back when there was journalism right right yeah. and uh, you be thus he became informed i became right uh largely informed occasionally mm -hmm. misinformed right. uh i was sometimes malinformed and that was not terrorism no. at the time no no um, no not but, at all yeah. but right yeah the um both the mcneil and Lehrer news hour mm -hmm. uh, back when pbs was alive and kicking it's a little dry <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah 60 minutes was more um more entertaining but um often some you know remarkably hard-hitting stories and also they um they are effectively reflecting back because they're doing journalism. They're supposed to be reflecting back some of what the biggest stories are that people are thinking about or should be thinking about uh, in in the world at the moment. So, you know, high production values, you know, big budget, large stopwatch, very large stopwatch, and you know, you got to know about how that would sound if it was in your living room. If you were any good at math, you could figure out how much of a television program was commercials by the fact that 60 minutes contained something like 43 well, minutes of content. Well, I was going to say it was often two or three interviews plus some preamble plus, was it Andy Rooney at the end? Is that <laughs> right? You, Andy right? Rooney. Yeah. Yes. Well, and so, and yet, you know, maybe these are sort of 12 minute total content wise, um, these interviews. But again, uh, this, this was as sort of deep as you would go in, in mainstream media and until, until podcasts mostly. Um, so hashtag boycott 60 minutes. Wow. What did they do? Well, what they did apparently. Uh, and it hasn't even happened yet. It's gonna. The segment is gonna air tomorrow. As, oh, as we're we, in the pre-crime segment. We're, we're in the pre-crime segment, but the crime's already been committed. It's just not public yet. So on April second, apparently they are going to for their for their Sunday show. Uh, they are going to reveal the again high production value results of the set of interviews that Leslie Stahl did with. Wait for it. The gall of the woman. The the inhumanity. Uh, she interviewed Marjorie Taylor Greene. Mm-hmm. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who, if you've been living under a rock, is a, uh, an elected official, a congresswoman uh, in the House of Representatives of the United States of America, representing Georgia. Now, we don't live in Georgia. We didn't vote for her. Probably wouldn't have voted for her if we were, did live there, but I don't know, right? She's there. She's an elected official. She has some she's remarkable the, views. She's the AOC of the right. She's the AOC of the red she's, team. She's the AOC of the red team, and... Um, you know, I think that both of those women have something to offer, and a lot of what they are is a dog and pony show. Both of them. What? Ah, that seems dangerous, but uh, I'm I'm all for it. Uh, yeah, a dog I'm and not, pony. Show. I'm not calling either of them dogs or ponies. Right. I'm I'm saying that so much of it is for show, and yet at base, both AOC and Marjorie Taylor Greene appear to have some fundamental values um, that I share. And I probably won't watch this, just like I probably wouldn't watch a Leslie Stahl interview with AOC. But the idea that 
Leslie Stahl just sitting down and talking with an elected official in the House of Representatives in the United States of America is enough to get the Twitter mob out in force and say basically for shame, for shame, how could you? Don't, you, you do not talk to those sorts of people is I think really indicative of the moment that we are living in. And that was the segue by which I wanted to introduce some of this um, Thomas Sowell thinking. But So yeah. it, it's a tell. It is right? a tell. The point that is, is let's say that you think Marjorie Taylor Greene is um, some sort of an, a, ter a terrible disaster, an affront to good governance or something like that. Right. That's a reasonable thing to think. You should want her interviewed. It will reveal itself. Or you'll discover that it isn't true, right? Mm. The idea... But that, that, that's the danger, isn't it? What if some people discover it's not true? Well, so this is, in fact... Uh, one of the central tools of the moment is um, penalizing people for open-mindedness, mm -hmm. right? And this, you know, we, of course, were cast into the public eye with exactly such a thing, right? Mm -hmm. We were beyond the pale for questioning mm -hmm. a policy change at our college that we were actually obligated as faculty members to question if we thought it was questionable. So, uh, you know, deplatforming people driving up the costs of voicing skepticism or nuance, which is really what it is, mm -hmm. right? Um, that tool is the kind of thing that you would want if the division of, let's say, Americans was serving your interests. If you needed Americans divided, because if Americans were to actually talk to each other, they would find that they were, for example, uh, all being shafted by the duopoly and that because it is a majority of Americans whose interest lies in overthrowing the duopoly, that they might do that. So if you needed the duopoly to maintain its position so that it could do your bidding uh, at the expense of the public, then you really wouldn't want people listening to the other side. And so whether it's, you know, Donald Trump is so evil that you dare not listen to what the man says, or Marjorie Taylor Greene, or right. AOC, or mm -hmm. you and me, mm -hmm. right? Sure. It's it's all of us. This is their tool. And so, you know, I will say the correct principle is read the books they wish to burn, right? Mm -hmm. Listen to the people they don't want you to hear. And you know what? Sometimes you will find that they're stark raving mad. And sometimes right. you will find they're a little bit of each, right? A little bit of what? what's the each? Stark raving mad with and some insight. Insight. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, so anyway, by listening, you're not agreeing to what they say. You're just, I mean, maybe you're even just listening to hear why they are persuasive to others. Oh my God. There, you know, there are so many reasons to both let everyone speak and to, in fact, listen to those with whom you are certain you disagree. And I cannot actually come up with any legitimate reason to shut down the ability for people to be, you know, interviewed on 60 Minutes, for instance. And you know, I think I saw. I, I then went and looked at the 60 Minutes tweet about this, and at Marjorie Taylor Greene's either retweet or you know, you know, going public with this, and um, they're both just very reasonable. You know, I, I think I think 60 Minutes because it's not a person; it's this entity doesn't state this. And I so I think it was Marjorie Taylor Greene who says, "Look, um, I had a great set of conversations with Leslie Stahl, and we don't agree about a lot of stuff, but um, but." Here we go. I feel honored to have been invited to have the conversations and, uh, you know, please listen. Yeah. I mean, good. Yes. 
Please listen. The people, your enemy, are the people who don't want you to listen to the people who are supposed to be your enemy. Exactly. Right? Listening to them is not, uh, you know, you have a mind for so that you can discern mm -hmm. what's reasonable and what is not. And somebody can say terrible things and it doesn't have to persuade you. Mm -hmm. and you don't have to feel jeopardized by it. And you should know what they're saying. That's right. So um, three episodes ago, I guess, episode Dark Horse 165, we discussed and read a few excerpts, excuse me, excerpts from Paul Tillich's work. Tillich was a German-born theologian who... Uh, came to the United States before World War II and then did these radio broadcasts with the help of the U.S. Office of War Information that were broadcast into into Germany during the Third Reich to help, basically, he was trying to wake up the German populace to what was happening. And he's really an extraordinary thinker. And in the wake of that, a, um, a I got to say acquaintance at this point because we don't, we haven't interacted a lot, but I, you know, I hope that we meet in real life at some point and become friends with um, the amazing, extremely talented Clifton Duncan, uh, who was an up and coming singer and actor, just remarkably talented. And I'll put a link to his uh, YouTube channel in the show notes. Um, his blossoming career on stage and screen was cut short by his refusal to comply with vaccine mandates. Um, so you will find him like, you, will ch you should check out his YouTube channel. You can also find him on Twitter, um, often just railing against the, the stupid and the certainty of the of the people who are so sure they're on the right side of history and keeping people like him um, from being in front of um, those of us who would be interested in hearing just a, a fabulous voice and and seeing the talents of such a uh, such an actor. Anyway, he reached out to me and said, you know, what you were sharing about Tillich uh, has been explored at some in some depth by um, Thomas Sewell. And he referenced um, a couple of works that I had, but also this massive book, Intellectuals and Society, which I had not owned. And he specifically pointed me to a few things. So I bought it and uh, I want to share just a few excerpts from it here today for us to talk about. Um, there are four excerpts. I think after each of them, we can, we can discuss a little bit. Uh, and they are all from chapter 10, which, and so the, this was a uh, 2011 book, first published in 2011. It's been updated with some chapters added uh, for republication in 2021. Um, but the original text uh, is from over 10 years ago at this point. And uh, it was this bad already then. Mm. Just keep that in mind. Okay, so chapter 10, all of these are from chapter 10, which is called Filtering Reality. This first uh, excerpt is the beginning of the chapter, Filtering Reality and Thomas Sewell's intellectuals and society i think it's soul isn't it soul i, I think I so keep trying to say soul and then i see how it's spelled and i can't do yeah, it yeah the problem is we have a soul right in our uh oh, that's the, so it's it is i i think like alma like i'm gonna go soul all like i'm gonna pronounce it like that and i then i can't right uh, thomas soul thomas soul not soul right <laughs> okay filtering reality the preservation of the vision of the anointed has led many among the intelligentsia to vigorous and even desperate expedients, including the filtering out of facts, the redefinition of words, and for some intellectuals, challenging the very idea of truth itself. Many among the intelligentsia create their own reality, whether deliberately or not, by filtering out information contrary to their conception of how the world is or ought to be. Some have gone further. J.A. Schumpeter said that the first thing a man will do for his ideals is lie. 
It is not necessary to lie, however, in order to deceive, when filtering will accomplish the same purpose. This can take the form of reporting selective and atypical samples, suppressing some facts altogether, or filtering out the inconvenient meanings or connotations of words. With regard to selective samples, Sowell writes, filtering the sample of information available to the public can take many forms. For example, Bennett Kerf or Surf, I'm not sure which, the founder of Random House Publishers, at one time during the Second World War, suggested that books critical of the Soviet Union be withdrawn from circulation. When the American economy was recovering from a recession in 1983, and unemployment was down in 45 out of the 50 states, ABC News simply chose to feature a report on one of the five states where that was not so, or as they put it, quote, where unemployment is most severe as if these states were just more severe examples of a more general condition, when in fact, they were very atypical of existing trends in unemployment. So that's the first little excerpt, um, just his, his framing of the issue and two examples um, of how in the past media has led, well, the first one is a, a call for actual censorship of books. Um, but the idea that ABC looked at 50 states found a, a trend that should make all of us feel good in 45 of 50 of them and decided to report on one of the others while actively eliding the fact that this was the exception is, well, as you said earlier, you know, back when journalism was happening, this was, this was back when journalism was, was supposedly happening. And, and still this uh, filtering of facts uh, while making it seem that you are getting the you know the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth has has never been the case honestly so there is a very deep question here mm -hmm. the license to adjust the presentation of reality in the truth-seeking realms you know yeah. journalism uh the courts science science in the university system yeah uh all of the places where truth is sought, there is always an argument to be made that certain truths are counterproductive and that we would be better off either adjusting them so that we do we present the thing that is most useful to believe or editing those which are inconvenient and presenting those that go on narrative. There's always this argument. It needs to be settled exactly once. The fact is you don't have a right to do that because truth-seeking itself is incredibly value in, valuable in moving forward. And what that means, and this is, you know, was obvious to the founders, for example, what that means is that you must suffer the costs that truth inevitably brings in order to get its benefits, mm -hmm. right? Just as the enemy is always those who don't want you to hear your enemy, right? The enemy is always those who are arguing in favor of their right to edit the truth for utility. Now, the problem with that, that all is very clear, I think. The problem with that, uh, and, you know, I would say, for example, uh, literally false metaphorically true, right? Here you have clear, evolved stories that are not literally true. They are, in fact, in many places in conflict with what we can discover to be literally true, mm -hmm. but obviously have utility. And I'm not attacking those things. Those things are valuable, have been valuable. What I'm saying is they don't belong in the laboratory, right? The place where you're seeking truth is not a place for metaphorical truth, right? It is a place for literal truth. The problem, however, is the universe is a very complex place. 
And we understand a lot in some places and very little in some others. And you have to have a mechanism for dealing with the stuff that you don't get yet, right? Mm -hmm. A lot of the stuff in the Bio 101 textbook is bullshit. But I call it bullshit because it's not done correctly. It does not acknowledge, we don't exactly know what takes place here, but here is something that could fit that space, and we will find out over time how much of this is right and how much of this is nonsense, right? Um, but putting a lot of black boxes into a Bio 101 textbook uh, will not suit the professor who doesn't want any questions, will not suit the eager undergraduate, maybe pre-health or... Um, or just is, you know, thinks that they need the answers and they need to know exactly what they are and uncertainty is uncomfortable. Uh, so those textbooks that have actual black boxes that say, we're not sure about what goes here. It might be this, it might be this, but we know that we start at A and we end at F and we're not sure what B through E look like, uh, would be a much better textbook in terms of teaching people actually how to think scientifically. Uh, but it does not fit with people's expectation of certainty. Well, and the expectation of certainty varies with topic. In other words, the thing that always troubled me about the bio textbook yeah. was that it was written in the same style as the chem textbook. And the mm -hmm. fact is, intro chem, we do have a really good idea how all that stuff works. We are encyclopedic. Now, there's a place you go far enough in chemistry, you get to a place where we're confused again. Mm -hmm. But it isn't in the intro textbook. In the bio textbook, it ought to be all over that thing. And so they shouldn't be written as similarly encyclopedic. I agree with you. I will just, just asterisk here um, that, you know, chemistry also uses metaphor, sure. right? Like, you know, all, all the science, all the scientists use metaphor. And many scientists, if you say that to them, are like, I, I most certainly do not. Right. What are you talking about? But, you know, the example for me, and you've heard this before, is like, you know, orbitals. Like, mm, you know, it's not, it's, it's not those neat little, little concentric shells, uh, like, like they make out it, it to be. And, you know, increasingly, I think that there is discussion of cloud rather than shells and, and such, but, um, but it is simplified, even, even if the actual understanding that we have is, is better at the level of basic chemistry than basic biology in some places, the intro textbooks are still written as if it is more simple and less nuanced, and we are more certain than we actually are. Yeah, it's just that the difference between the chemistry and the biology is orders of magnitude in terms of what fraction we understand. And um, because of the difference in complexity. Right, because of the difference in, in complexity, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And there's another issue, which we hinted at at the beginning of the podcast. How are we to depict a neuron that has, you know, a thousand, several thousand dendritic connections to other neurons. Mm -hmm. You could have just a sea of complexity and then the student doesn't understand the neuron. Yep. Or you could simplify it and then they get the wrong idea of the neuron and it gets overly ingrained. And one of the, yep. uh, I've I, I become troubled by this over time, never figured out exactly what the right thing to do is other than just to call attention to it. The capacity of something, especially something visually compelling, to mislead the mind is so great that when we do diagram a neuron and it has eight dendrites and one axon and the number of axons is right, but the number of dendrites is way the hell off, mm -hmm. um, we create that broken model in the mind. And the point is it's like, a snowplow when you're skiing, 
right? The snowplow might be how you... It's a low adaptive peak. Yeah, it's a low adaptive peak and it's hard to get out of it, right? Mm -hmm. It's once you've learned that a snowplow is how you can control your speed, it's hard to pull your skis together and learn to, you know, use a turn to control your speed. Mm -hmm. Um, So anyway, we, we... Because it requires that you are facing downhill with no brakes yeah, on at it, some moment in every turn. It, yeah, you are crossing right. the fall line. And yeah. and so we've got to figure out how you own up to this ahead of time. You tell the student, look, yeah. there's a thing that you have to do temporarily, and it's not right, but you're going to get this first, and then we're going to fix it later. And if we got good at saying that, we're yeah. going to, you know, either this is something we've learned. Like the and image we, comes up with an asterisk. Like, okay, you can now visualize that that neuron, but have that ax- yeah. have that asterisk in your head as well. That's part of the visual. Right. This yeah. is 50% wrong or 10% wrong or something. I, I something, wouldn't quantify it. But, yeah, I wouldn't quantify it either. Yeah. But, but something to indicate that there is something, that learning this thing will make you feel clever, but there's a next stage which is going to make it feel dumb or something, right? <laughs> um, that is really important. And mm-hmm. I, I was actually prone to think about this uh our family watched um what's it 13 days the uh cuban oh. missile crisis mm-hmm. about, uh, about yeah the cuban missile crisis in 1962 two three two. uh it's got to be two i two, think two, um yeah. but in any case really well done high production values they go through a lot of effort to represent the the scenes and the people in ways you know doesn't look like JFK exactly, but close enough. And anyway, but, you know, so I went and I uh, looked it up. How accurate was this portrayal? Mm -hmm. And highly accurate in terms of narrative uh, of the progression of the missile crisis, not highly accurate with respect to the personalities involved. In fact, the main character is actually kind of a nobody in the White House um really? yeah so so the main character in the film is is brought up to tell the story but actually wasn't he, wasn't particularly anything as the, far as anybody knows he is okay. uh, not a not an important player and he was or not nearly so important a player and he is used as a narrative device to make the story work um yeah, you, he gets he gets told things he introduces ideas that otherwise you have to like put script on screen or something right and he drives you know the kennedys to find the best in themselves and to stand up when they have to and these things and Mm -hmm. uh anyway how much does the representation because this is not a fictionalization of the cuban missile crisis because it accurately represents something that you know you and i didn't live through we're not old enough to have lived through it much less lived through it at an old enough age to grok it in real time so the representation of the Cuban Missile Crisis that we see on screen comes to supplant the actual history but, for what, a large what, number what of people. It's not a fictionalization. It is. It's fiction. It's 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 portrayed as historical fiction, which in you know historical fiction is a is a broad genre, uh, in which right. in which I think you hope for uh, the ability to learn some truth about history, but any particular thing that you take from historical fiction, you would want to fact check that of course. before assuming that it was actually something that was being conveyed accurately. But I can see that you, like I, were surprised that the main character Absolutely. in the film is not an important player mm-hmm. in the Kennedy White House. Right. right? But I, I guess I was just objecting to it, like, of, of course it's a fictionalization. Well, but, you know, I guess the point is then fiction is such a huge category mm-hmm. from, you know, the dialogue is made up, but the 
events are accurate to this person is actually not really is playing a role that was not played but is necessary to get the story told in two hours right um you know this that's a whole other conversation right like what in a a police procedural or something like what's a dramatization a dramatization is as far as we are led to believe supposed to be an actual accurate portrayal of what happened but of course no one knows for sure exactly what all happened and this particular dramatization may value um the will inherently value the perceptions and the hypotheses of the person who put that together at the time and maybe they're right maybe they're wrong well and so this this goes back to my my point about textbooks and things like this the degree of damage done to our historical understanding by the movie 13 days is very tiny. In yeah. fact, probably it mm-hmm. is a vast upgrade in terms of the fraction of the population that understands what the events were and and all of that. Mm-hmm. The damage done by something that, you know, inverts a story, right, that makes, you know, the allies, uh, makes the U.S. the hero of the allies rather than acknowledging the huge amount of the winning of World War II that was done by the Russians, for example, yeah. um, is you know, destructive of our understanding of history. And the basic underlying point is truth-seeking is about truth-seeking. We don't get to tell stories that uh, increase our valor at the expense of truth because the point is the truth-seeking is like a sacred uh, or should be sacred, meaning we should not mess with it. To that point, we have several more examples of exactly this from Thomas Sowell, from, again, Intellectuals in Society. Homelessness, he writes, is another area where much of the media filters where much of the media filters what kind of reality gets through to their audience. During his time at CBS News, Bernard Goldberg noticed the difference between what he saw on the street and what was being broadcast on television. He said, In the 1980s, I started noticing that the homeless people we showed on the news didn't look very much like the homeless people I was tripping over on the sidewalk. The ones on the sidewalk, by and large, were winos or drug addicts or schizophrenics. They mumbled crazy things or gave you the evil eye when they put paper coffee cups in your face and asked for money. But the ones we liked to show on television were different. They looked as if they came from your neighborhood and mine. They looked like us. And the message from TV news was they didn't just look like us, they were like us. On NBC, Tom Brokaw said that the homeless are, quote, people you know. If the homeless tend to be sanitized in television news, businessmen tend to be demonized in movies and television dramas, as another study found. Quote, Only 37% of the fictional entrepreneurs played positive roles, and the proportion of bad guy businessmen was almost double that of all other occupations. What's more, they were really nasty, committing 40% of the murders and 44% of the vice crimes. Only 8% of primetime criminals were black. End quote. Uh, But continuing with what Sowell writes... Soul, yes. In real life, as well as in fiction, what was presented to television audiences was highly atypical of what exists in the real world. Um, Another example. During the period studied, 6% of the people with AIDS shown on the evening news were gay men, but in real life, 58% were gay men. On TV, 16% were blacks and Hispanics, but in real life, 46% were black or Hispanic. On TV, 2% of the AIDS sufferers were IV drug users, in real life, 23% were. This creation of a picture reflecting the vision of the anointed rather than the realities of the world extends to textbooks used in schools. Publishers such as McGraw-Hill, for example, have percentage guidelines as to how many of the people shown in photographs in their textbooks have to be black, white, Hispanic, and disabled. Moreover, the way these individuals are portrayed must also reflect the vision of the anointed. 
According to the Wall Street Journal, quote, one major publisher vetoed a photo of a barefoot child in an African village on the grounds that the lack of footwear reinforced the stereotype of poverty on that continent, end quote. In short, the painfully blatant reality of desperate poverty in much of Africa is waved aside as a stereotype because it does not fit the vision to be portrayed, even if it does fit the facts. Wow. That's number. That's the second of the four excerpts I wanted to share from Thomas Sowell's Intellectuals in Society. So uh, I want to point to two things. Yeah. One, um, Michael Schellenberger mm -hmm. uh, did a tremendous amount in much more recent times yes. to reveal the the um, factual bankruptcy of the idea that what we have is a homelessness crisis, mm -hmm. right? Homelessness is a symptom of a different crisis, and it is a yeah. euphemism that obscures the problem so that lots of people labor under the misapprehension that the problem is not enough homes and rent being too expensive or something like that. Um, yeah. rather and than... we talked about this. I mean, his, his book is extraordinary. And yeah. uh, we talked about this in some live streams past. Yep. Yeah. Um, so but, but he also he also did the service as many people now are doing. But he also did the service of just taking the camera onto the streets in the Bay Area, yeah. specifically in San Francisco, um, and saying, "Yep, this this is what I'm seeing. This is what is happening." And he um, inter interviewed people, and it was amazing how open they were about their drug addictions and mm -hmm. uh, what kind of hospitable environment they find for their vices in San Francisco. Yes, um, I actually just anecdotally, and I'm not going to give away the specifics so that I don't, I'm just going to anonymize the person I heard this from, but I was just talking to someone in Portland who said uh, there's an interview up uh, with some homeless woman who was being asked, like, why don't you go into the housing that's been erected? Like, you know, we there is actually some housing that has been uh, put together, but there are a few rules, like, you know, you don't, there's no drugs and there's, um, and you have to keep the space clean. And she said, well, like, why, why would I leave? This is fantastic. You get up, you get high, you go get your free meal, you come back, you go to sleep, you get up, you get high, you get your free meal, you come back, you go to sleep. Repeat. And no, that's not everyone's story, but her story, and it's very much like what Schellenberger was seeing farther south on the West Coast in another major city, uh, was, you know, if, if you make a life appealing to people who have underlying problems that uh, are not entirely reducible to, I do not have a home, then they will continue to choose to live the life that you have made appealing. Yeah. People navigate based on proxies for well-being. And unfortunately, those proxies are especially easily sidelined by uh, chemicals that interfere with the motivational architecture. So it's not surprising right. that if you take the pain out of losing your home and you facilitate, you know, the pursuit of those chemicals that lots of people will fail to find the motivation to fix their lives. And I am not claiming that there is a solution in that description. What I'm claiming is that it is obvious that you will increase the problem if that's your approach is mm -hmm. to, you know, to use compassion in a, uh, a naive way is of course going to create a bigger problem than than you initially had. That's right. Uh, should I do the next one? Or did you have someone yeah. else to say? Here, okay. Third of four excerpts from Chapter Ten of Thomas Sowell's Intellectuals and Society. I can figure out where it is. Here we go. 
suppressing facts. One of the historic, sorry, my computer. Okay. One of the historic examples of suppressing facts was the reporting and non-reporting of the Soviet Union's government-created famine in the Ukraine and the North Caucasus that killed millions of people in the 1930s. This is going far back, right? <clears throat> New York Times Moscow correspondent Walter Duranti wrote, there is no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be. He received a Pulitzer Prize. The Pulitzer panel commending him for his reports, quote, marked by scholarship, profundity, impartiality, sound judgment, and exceptional clarity. Meanwhile, British writer Malcolm Muggeridge reported from the Ukraine that peasants there were in fact starving. Quote, I mean starving in its absolute sense, not undernourished as, for instance, most Oriental peasants and some unemployed workers in Europe, but having had for weeks next to nothing to eat, end quote. Muggeridge, Muggeridge, I'm not sure how to pronounce it, wrote in a subsequent article, the man-made famine was, quote, one of the most monstrous crimes in history, so terrible that people in the future will scarcely be able to believe it ever happened, end quote. Decades later, a scholarly study by Robert Conquest, The Harvest of Sorrow, estimated that six million people had died in that famine over a period of three years. Still later, when the official archives were finally opened in the last days of the Soviet Union under Mikhail Gorbachev, new estimates of the deaths from the, the man-made famine were made by various scholars who had studied material from those archives. Most of their estimates equaled or exceeded Dr. Conquest's earlier estimates. At the time of the famine, however, this was one of the most successful filtering operations imaginable. What Muggeridge said was dismissed as, quote, a hysterical tirade by Beatrice Webb, co-author with her husband Sidney Webb of an internationally known study of the Soviet Union. Muggeridge was vilified, was unable to get work as a writer, writer after his dispatches from the Soviet Union, and was so financially strapped that he, his wife, and two small children had to move in with friends. There is no need to believe that there was any conspiracy among editors or journalists to silence and ostracize Malcolm Muggeridge, nor is a conspiracy necessary for successfully filtering out things that do not fit the prevailing vision, either then or now. Except for Muggeridge and a very few other people, a famine deliberately used to break the back of resistance to Stalin, killing a comparable or larger number of people as those who died in the Nazi Holocaust, Holocaust would have been filtered completely out of history instead of being merely ignored as it usually is today. This was not a matter, of, a matter of honest mistakes by Durante and others. What Durante said privately to some other journalists and to diplomats at the time was radically different from what he said in his dispatches to the New York Times. For example, in 1933, a British diplomat reported to London, quote, Mr. Durante thinks it is quite possible that as many as 10 million people may have died directly or indirectly from lack of food in the Soviet Union during the past year. So when people wonder why it's important that we know what, for instance, Anthony Fauci was saying privately early in COVID, this is why. So this is why. This is why, and it also reveals um, the complexity of the corruption of such systems. And right. Sol is absolutely right. This does not require a conspiracy. What mm -hmm. it requires is a system of incentives that mm -hmm. results in the story being obscured, right? The journalist who reports it finds themselves unable to get work. The journalist who obscures it finds themselves in possession of a Pulitzer Prize. Mm -hmm. Actually, they should call it a Pulitzer Prize since he got... That's been done. It's been done. Mm -hmm. Oh, well, all right. I feel derivative. Um, <laughs> well, but, you didn't know it'd been done. No, I didn't. I didn't. Um, but anyway, um, this actually is a terrific moment to... Um, point then to Jacob Siegel's new 
excellent article in Tablet Magazine on this very topic. Um, So what he has done is an exploration. Do we have, I have not seen this Yeah, you have a Jacob Siegel's uh, tablet article. Um, Jacob Siegel is a senior editor at Tablet Magazine. Yep. And here is his new article maybe a tour that's, de force that's an alarming image that is an alarming for those of you who are just listening it's a it's a an oil or something of a of a crow with a um digital eye a like digital a eye. eye yep mm-hmm. and the title of the article is a guide to understanding the hoax of the century mm. anyway it is um excellent it's quite a long article we will post a link to it um, and what it does it, is it explores the new architecture for managing narratives, ostensibly uh, in the national interest. Um, but of course, that's not how it works, is it? No, this is a nation structure that has been captured by special interests, which means interests that are counter to the public's interest, that is foisting a narrative on us that has all sorts of ramifications, be they... Uh, medical, fiscal, um, international relations, environmental. And so anyway, what you and I have been talking about, um, you know, in terms of, for example, mis-dis and malinformation uh, is discussed here. The article does cover uh, the shenanigans over COVID, one amongst many topics. He's got 13 uh, different perspectives that he describes. Anyway, highly recommend it. It's definitely worth the investment of time. I also discovered this morning that there is a glossary that Tablet Magazine, I hope they are just building it. It's not complete as it is, but they are, appear to be building a glossary of terms relevant to information control. Mm. I, of course, uh, furiously contacted them this morning and said, you need misdis and malinformation, and you need to trace it back to um, the Department of Homeland Security that introduced this in their memo in uh, February of two, uh, 2022. That's right. Um, but anyway, uh, follows perfectly from uh, from Thomas Sowell's um, words. Indeed, it does. Okay, one last uh, one last excerpt from Sowell for today. Same chapter, filtering reality, in the book Intellectuals and Society, first published in 2011, republished uh, with a few added chapters, although not this one, I think, uh, in 2021. Just as it is hard to find any consistent correlation between gun ownership and violent crime rates internationally, it is hard to find any such correlation from historical statistics within the United States. As one study noted, quote, The United States experienced an extraordinary increase in violent crime in the 1960s and 1970s, and a remarkable drop in violent crime in the 1990s. The number of firearms, especially handguns, in private hands increased by several million every year during this period. The relentless growth in the privately held stock of firearms cannot explain both the crime wave of the first period and the crime drop of the second period. Few of these facts detrimental to gun control advocates' case reach the general public, although there is no organized conspiracy to block the truth. Individual ad hoc filtering of what gets through the media to the public can readily add up to as complete a distortion of reality as if there were a conscious coordination by a heavy-handed censorship or propaganda agency. If those individual journalists and editors who do the filtering share the same general vision of what is and what ought to be. What seems plausible to those who share that vision can become the criterion of both believability and newsworthiness. 
Plausibility, however, is the most treacherous of all criteria, for what will seem plausible in a particular case depends on what one already believes in general. It is not necessary for either individuals or a cabal to work out a plan of deliberate deception for filtering of information to produce a distorted picture that resembles the vision of the anointed rather than the reality of the world. All that is necessary is that those in a position to filter, whether as reporters, editors, teachers, scholars, or movie makers, decide that there are certain aspects of reality that the masses would misunderstand, and which a sense of social responsibility requires those in a position to filter to leave out. This applies far beyond issues of gun control. Fantastic. Yeah. As always, he is uh, right on the money, mm-hmm. both analytically and also the way uh, he presents these things. It's just uh, hits you over the head every time. Yeah. And I can't at the moment think of a major story uh, to which this isn't applying. Right. Like this. Yep. Certainly the last three years of COVID in which uh, the entire world and, uh, you know, to some degree, us specifically have been informed that you may not have those conversations. You may not investigate those those questions uh, because doing so adds an element of doubt into the minds of the masses, basically. And, you know, the argument is one of, we, and, you know, it's his, argue, his word, it's the anointed versus all the rest of us. And uh, at some level, you know, what we have been accused of doing is breaking ranks. Uh-huh. You, like, you, you got your fancy degrees. You're the anointed. Don't do this. Yes. <laughs> right? And, you know, we have somewhat fancy degrees, but more to the point, are scientists. Yeah, we got degrees in uh, truth-seeking. Right. And what actually are all of those other people with supposed degrees in truth-seeking up to? Because either they never could do it, in which case their degrees are shams, which some of them are, or they are actively lying to themselves and or to everyone else, in which case they don't deserve to stand as if with authority and speak words that, whether or not they know it, aren't true. What was the publication, initial publication? 2011. 2011. So I did want to highlight one thing. He's correct that you don't need a conspiracy to get these things. Mm -hmm. We, however, are living in 2023. We are. And the fact that a conspiracy is not necessary to get this kind of narrative control doesn't mean that we don't have one. And in fact, it's out in the open, right? That we see the Department of Homeland Security warning us about misdis and malinformation. And oh, by the way... It happens to be a form of terrorism, which creates a, uh, a whole um, network of laws, or I hesitate to call them laws because they're clearly unconstitutional, but um, but anyway. Dictats. Yes, mechanisms are triggered by the invoking of those syllables by the executive of which the DHS is part, and so by defining certain beliefs. DHS, DHS is part of the executive branch? Yeah. Um, the point is the executive himself, our senile president in this case, mm-hmm. could define you as a terrorist for speaking truth that was inconvenient to the narrative, which would be malinformation, for example. And the fact that he couldn't remember having done so half an hour later is irrelevant. All the better. It's a feature, not a bug. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So anyway, the point is we have, we have seen conspiracies at many different levels. We have seen conspiracies at the federal level, especially the executive branch. We have seen uh, 
Gavi. We have seen the Trusted News Initiative. We have seen inside the Twitter files. Mm. And the point is there's a vast bulwark uh, attempting to control the narrative in the interests of something, something that inhabits the costume of our government but is really uh, a pretender. Um, that thing is exerting tremendous control. And the point is, look, this is an authoritarian, a cryptically authoritarian state. The idea that, yes, you don't need a conspiracy to get you know news organizations to broadcast something convenient to those that uh, butter their bread, but right. it doesn't mean you don't have one. And in this case, the basic point is if you lived in the Soviet Union in you know the 70s, you knew pretty well to ignore the official proclamations of your government, even though they came through an ostensibly journalistic establishment at Pravda, right? I think so. I mean, I'm actually increasingly, I'm very curious how people living in various, in particular spaces and times, in particular places and times, actually did regard what was happening. You know, these last three years have been eye-opening in terms of how people will tie themselves in knots uh, to demonstrate to themselves and to the rest of the world that they are the good people on the right side of history while explicitly being the opposite. Well, um, I do think that this would have been evident to any thinking person living inside the Soviet Union in the 70s or 80s. Um, And I think that what we face is much more confusing, right? Because, Mm -hmm. uh, Because it isn't an authoritarian state. And so we don't expect it to lie to us at this level. We don't expect it to punish citizens because how, of course, would you do that? That would be illegal for the federal government to punish citizens for wrong think. In the U.S., what about the First Amendment? And yet we see it happening through all of these public-private partnerships, as they are falsely called. When we think of corruption, we come up with, you know, the things that we've experienced. Trying to drive through a country in Latin America and being stopped by the police and being told that we need to give them cash before we can continue on. Yes, the -the on-the-spot fine. The -the on-the-spot fine, which we've literally had happen to us. Uh, And... Uh, like that, oh, that's what corruption looks like, right? Uh, being asked when I went in to get my research permits in Madagascar um, as a graduate student who was literally making $13,000 a year and had gotten a grant to do my research in Madagascar um, by the person behind the counter, where's my Land Rover? That, that was the first ask. I don't, I don't have a Land Rover. I ended up delivering a bottle of whiskey. Like it went down from Land Rover to whiskey. Like okay, that's how negotiation works. <laughs> that'll do it, right? And we went through computer. Um, this would have been in the '90s, so yeah, it's like oh, I didn't arrive in Madagascar with a mainframe for you. So um, anyway, that, that that's that's both the cartoon version and yeah, it does exist. Like corruption does exist like that in countries where there is such great disparity of wealth and um, officials can line their pockets a little bit by um, seeing who might have money and extracting it from them. But that's not almost ever what it looks like in the weird world. And that doesn't mean that corruption isn't happening. Right. And you know, yes, the kind of corruption where some local authority extracts funds from people is bad, but the amount of harm done by the large-scale, very polite, well-dressed executive-level corruption is vastly greater. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know... I'd far rather be asked to pay in a bottle of whiskey every now and again. Sure. Yes. (laughs) That's a world you can live in. Yeah. Not, I mean, but lest I be misunderstood, 
the the government of Madagascar is not functional, or at least it certainly wasn't in the '90s. And I, oh, it can't be right. Uh, so I'm not I'm not saying that 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 overall it's a more functional system. I'm saying if I had to choose between these two kinds of corruption in isolation, um, the simple tit for tat exchange that is visible and that is apparent to everyone is far easier to contend with. Um, yes. And uh, anyway, there's a much longer conversation to be had. But once you've seen truly malignant government, um, you cannot help but see the point of the libertarians. Libertarians are, you know, tragically wrong on the game theory. But frankly, I would much rather live in a system uh, harmed by the absence of necessary laws than one in which the lawmaking authority is uh, corrupt and malevolent and effective, which is where we are. Right. All right. Well, I think that brings us to the end of that that little that section. Happy little yes. diversion. Intellectuals and society. That's what they'll get you. All, yep. of, <laughs> all of that. Uh, so you wanted to revisit uh, a large part of the conversation that we had last week about AI. Yeah, I wanted to revisit one thing and then update people on some stuff that happened this week that is definitely worthy of, of noting. Okay. Um, the, the revisiting involved the conversation that uh, was being had by people who think about uh, AI and existential risk. And what I saw, you know, we talked about a taxonomy last week of uh, different levels of horror. And the horrors, the three that we presented were presented. Uh, a malevolent AI that views humans as a competitor or a threat. Existential and, even. Right, and uh, <laughs> goes yeah. after us. Mm -hmm. Not um, recognizing that having gotten rid of their existential threat, they will also cease to exist. But Well. Uh, yeah, depending, I guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, would, I would say that there is a version of this story in which they figure out how to solve their needs. Yeah, that's. But yeah, then there's that's a, that's a branch maybe that I shouldn't have introduced. But okay, malevolent is you one got of your malevolent AI is, yeah. is the worst case. Badly aligned AI that isn't malevolent but uh, follows instructions maybe too literally and yeah, uh, AI. Yeah, the the paperclip maximizer. Mm -hmm. um, that's an existential threat of its own. Mm -hmm. um, and then the third layer was the derangement of the humans by having this intellect to interact with, to query, to request things of with no preparedness for how one thinks about what it knows, what it doesn't know, what effect it's having on what people think is true. And basically, I would say um, we came, we, civilization, came unglued over covid presumably in the pre-AGI era. I don't think we can be certain of that. But we came unglued, and now we have an accelerant dumped on that same system without us having learned seemingly any of the lessons that we should have learned for what went wrong in the information environment during COVID. That is a disaster. And what I wanted to point to is that I think the... Uh, Folks who think about existential risk and AGI are suffering from what is called the availability heuristic, mm. which is that you default to those things as explanations. You default to those things that are uh, knowledgeable, that you are knowledgeable about, that are close at hand. 
and away from things that you don't know how to think about. And so I have the sense that you've got a bunch of folks uh, in the rationalist community and adjacent communities who uh, are at least very experienced in thinking about the malevolent AI and the paperclip maximizer, and not so good about thinking about human confusion. In fact, they um, really fucked up COVID pretty badly. They got suckered and uh, ended up on the wrong side of that discussion many times. I feel like a, a, a analogous, or standing in a slightly different place to, you can employ the availability heuristic or you can go sort of Rumsfeldian and that he wasn't the first person who did this, but he was the most famous person who talked about the known knowns, the known unknowns, the unknown knowns, and the unknown unknowns. And it is it is human nature uh, to focus on the known knowns and to some degree on the known unknowns. But the unknown knowns or unknowns, of course, you don't focus there because you inherently don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Um... It is it is that that categorization. I miss Rumsfeld, despite him being a <laughs> diabolical human. But um, no, he was the Yogi Berra of uh, international relations and military matters. And um, you know, where have we arrived? I don't know, God. but we do end up quoting the man more than. Well, but are there others, or is it just that? Because I don't. I if I remember, I looked into it at one point, and he did not. That's not original with him. That um, I don't remember who it was original with, but are there other things that he says? Because he's not the Yogi Berra of whatever international relations if he has one. No, no, there are a couple others. Are there? Um, it okay. will take me some time to, oh, uh, you don't go to a war with the army you want, you go to war with the army that you have or oh, yeah. the army you have. Yeah, anyway, yeah, there yeah. are a couple. That's true. Uh, that's a Yogi Berra. Put that aside and Yogi return. Berish. Yogi Berish. Yeah. Hey, hey, boo-boo. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. But <laughs> um, all right. So back to the AI question. So I do have the sense that the existential risk uh, AGI folks are very focused on the two problems that they think a lot about and enjoy and not focused enough on the, hey, if you actually solved Maybe both of those are alignment problems, or maybe, yeah, let's call them both alignment problems, okay. malevolent and uh, confused AI. Yeah. Um, even if you solve those, yes. we still have an existential threat oh. in the confusion layer. No, this is, this is, this now is more of a taxonomy because before it was just a categorization. It's like one, two, three, these all exist without any attempt to describe the relationship between them. You just had a trisomy, right? Like you just, right. You just had a, a, a trichotomously branching thing. Um, but I think that's right. I, uh, I think what you've just done, which is to say the malevolent and the confused um, are both of a type and can be dealt with by the same brains who are thinking carefully-ish about AI, but they aren't thinking about, they aren't thinking evolutionarily or about the humans, the yep. users. Well, yep. I think I'm borrowing, they can correct me if I'm wrong, the malevolent and confused or indifferent paperclip maximizing mm -hmm. uh, AI. I believe they would group those as they who? Uh, who they? the existential risk AGI folks. Okay. would group those as alignment, both of them. Okay. So they would say that. I'm adding something, and I'm saying right. you've got a confusion layer, which is in and of itself an existential threat. Um, it's an accelerant on all of the terribleness that we saw during COVID on whatever the next thing is. Did I say trisomy? You did. Yeah, that's you meant wrong. trichotomy. Tri yeah, and I, then I said, no, no, you meant it's a polytomy. It's a polytomy. Yeah. All right. Now we are. I was sorry. I just, like I was thinking about 
chromosomes we are before not, we went on air. We are not even inside baseball at the point. We are inside a baseball. <laughs> staring I'm, at I'm sorry. Corks it's like, and wait, I used totally the wrong word. And cordage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry. Go on. No, you're good. Yeah. Um, it's interesting how that stuff remains in the buffer and then you find it and you're like, damn, did I say that? What part of me said that? I, I know exactly. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, okay. So you've got the existential threat that is not getting widely discussed because it's, you know, there aren't as, I guess there are now a couple uh, sci-fi films that cover it, but um, not, not well, I think. So, which brings me to the next part of this. There was a weird kind of battle that broke out, right? Some very important folks signed an open letter. You want to show mm. the open letter? Uh, calling for a six-month moratorium on training of AI systems above GPT-4. Above? What do you mean above? You they mean don't like want GPT-5. Following from, yeah. downstream of. Uh, upgraded from more powerful than well no look at us all using all the metaphors i don't think it's i don't think it's vague i think the basic point is how much stuff did you give it to read right and we've seen at a certain level what it can do at gpt4 and their point is don't you dare give it a bigger library because now we know we've got a problem okay Mm -hmm. so more powerful than is what it says yeah Mm -hmm. so more powerful means a uh, bigger, bigger library. Um, now, on the one hand, this is some really important people signed this. Elon Musk signed it. I saw Jim Rutt's name. There are a lot of people whose names you would know, some Great. important people in, uh, in AI research, um, calling for a six-month moratorium. And then you had some important dissenters most prominently is not as part of the letter, but people who came out afterwards and said no wrong. People who disagreed with the letter. Mm-hmm. Now, disagreement with the letter came in two opposite forms. One form not strong enough. Yeah, one form was yeah. not strong enough. So yeah. Eliza Yudkowsky. Yeah. yeah, will you show his thing? Um, so this is Eliza Yudkowsky writing. You want to scroll down? Uh, pausing AI development. Um, pausing AI development, something, I, I didn't catch the full title here. I'm going to scroll back. Pausing AI developments isn't enough. We need to shut it all down. Okay. Mm-hmm. And this was a, um, it's a little hard to describe this piece. It's rare that one sees anything written like this in a mainstream publication or something that, you know, has that uh, as its as its legacy. But he basically says, many of us who think about this mm-hmm. question believe that yep. the dawning of AGI will result in the extinction of all of humanity, yep. the death of all living people. Um, and he goes on to clarify that um, he doesn't mean that there's some remote chance of it, that he thinks it's the likely outcome. Now... Um, but there are also the sort of Pollyanna objections to the letter saying, it's fine. It's all going to be fine. Right. right. Now, I will say Yudkowsky goes to, Yudkowsky goes to extraordinary lengths, and he advocates for things like airstrikes on servers that don't abide by a moratorium on this kind of research. He advocates for 
uh, airstrikes on servers that don't abide by a complete shutdown of this technology. Yeah. Okay. Now, that has been mocked by many people. Um, it is certainly... Uh, it's either the most serious existential threat to humanity, as he apparently is arguing. I haven't read his letter, or it's not. Yeah. Now, I'm not supportive of <laughs> Oh, that's of a bridge his... too far. Well, is it or is it not, <laughs> you know, the most serious existential threat to humanity right now? I actually, like, again, I haven't read it, so I don't know that that's his claim, but it sounds like it's at least close to. It's well, in the right a... neighborhood of his claim, right? Yes. Um, there's a question about how we are to navigate such things. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you had a runaway AI that was threatening humanity, you know, we bomb stuff over much less than that, right? A bit. So yeah. uh, obviously there's an argument to be made. On the other hand, it is not apparent that this style of thinking is correctly anticipating what comes. It is certainly troubling that a large number of people who appear capable of high quality thought and are expert in this area believe that there is an alarming possibility of such a thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, are, are we to start bombing people over, you know, somebody's uh, breathless claims in Time Magazine? I don't know. I, that, that, that doesn't sound like any planet I know about. That wasn't in time, was it? Yeah. Oh, it was. Yeah. Oh. Um, Yudkowsky's. Yudkowsky, yeah. Oh. So, okay. That's interesting. So you've got a letter with many uh, mainstream folks arguing for a six-month moratorium. Mm -hmm. You've got Yudkowsky saying, I refuse to sign that letter because it didn't go nearly far enough mm -hmm. and advocating for a you know military-level response to anybody who doesn't abide by a full moratorium. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then full you and permanent. I believe so. Mm -hmm. um, and then you have, or not permanent, I guess it would be pending the development of yeah. okay. uh, strategies that are sufficient to contain this. Not clear that any such thing is true. And I would also, possible. Yes. I would also point out in this milieu, it is not surprising that something AGI-like has emerged. That was completely obvious that that was going to happen. Mm -hmm. When exactly it was going to happen, okay, maybe that's surprising. But to the extent that something about GPT-4 has got people talking about airstrikes on server farms, it was obvious before GPT-3.5 that such a thing was down the road. So, and I'm not saying that they didn't have these discussions. They did, but the point is... You know, yes, we are somewhere down this road, and we can now say something about where that where we are. But it's not news that this was coming. So, to the extent that there is a desire to put together strategies that would contain such a thing at the point that it was developed, where were you six years ago? Mm -hmm. Why don't we have those things? Why didn't you get yes. them ready? And uh, you know, it's not that they weren't trying, but the point is, you think your moratorium is going to work until we have those strategies, but you didn't really learn anything you didn't know, right? Right. You knew this was coming. So that's one thing. The other thing is the letter itself calling for a moratorium. Um, some of the folks in a rabbit hole that I sometimes go down uh, were having a very excellent discussion about the game theory surrounding this. And this one was bugging me uh, from the point people started talking about, well, what do we do now that, now that AGI seems to have dawned? Well, the question is, anything you do at the point that these horses have left the barn, may disadvantage you relative to somebody who doesn't agree to abide by it. Right. Right? So, yeah. you know, who does that put an advantage, right? 
you know, is, yeah. is open AI, you know, our best hope or, you know, well, but I mean, that obviously that raises the question about, okay, so, uh, Yudkowsky would have us bomb server farms that don't abide worldwide. How do we know where, like what, what, what at a practical level? Precisely. Like? Yeah. So the point is what Yudkowsky is advocating for is tantamount to a commitment to attack, let's say China, if it forges ahead and if we hold AI back domestically and China forges ahead, then, you know. Well, and how, I, 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 don't, I don't think I underestimate the, the, the risk here. I'm very, very concerned. But how would we know? I mean, one of the things we all should have learned in the last three years is that what China says it's doing cannot necessarily be trusted. Like, how obvious is this? Yeah, it's pretty obvious. And... Um... You know, my feeling, and I don't know what to do about it, it's not that I don't think these risks are real, that they're being overstated. Yeah. I think we are now across the event horizon. Uh, I think the quality of what virtually everybody is saying on this matter is low, mm -hmm. right? Predicting across this event horizon is just not working, right? We don't know where we just landed. And we don't know how fast it's going to progress. Um, the answer, the only things that we know... I think are we aren't prepared, and um, we now have a potential emergency on our hands. Well, and I, maybe maybe the metaphor, which is not in its original a metaphor, but the metaphor, the way that we use it of event horizon, is inadequate. Uh, we have to combine it with our what we propose in Hunter Gatherer's Guide with regard to hypernovelty and the accelerating rate of change. It's not that we are over the event horizon. We may be over an event horizon, and there are how many more? And they are coming at us with how much more rapidity than they did in the past? That even if we find our footing here, the next one will hit us, and then we will have lost our footing again. That's right. Now, the, the problem, I, I mean, of course, as, uh, as co-participant in... in the creation of that idea, of course. The point is we've... The hypernovelty. Yeah, yes, we've created a conveyor belt where we keep getting hit with things that upend all of the important stuff in civilization. And, you know, we see all of the great things that it will do for us, and we don't see the hazards until it's too late. And in fact, even if you do see the hazards, until you can prove that the hazard, you know, until you can be specific and prove it, um, there's no mechanism for restraining this stuff. And at the point you can see the hazards and prove it, it's too late. And I just, I, I specifically am trying to make the point that event horizon still seems to everyone, I think. And, you know, to, you just used it because it seems like the most, like that, that is going to be the thing that snaps us all to attention. Like, oh my God, we are nowhere that we have been before and we don't know what we're doing and we don't know how to do it. Or, you know, or we're approaching it and we won't know necessarily at what point we cross it, but suddenly we will not have the skills and the tools that we need. But it's this iterated event horizon thing that hypernovelty, like combine the hyper, the accelerating rate of change and hypernovelty with the event horizon metaphor. And you're like, oh, it's event horizon after event horizon after event horizon. How do you plan? Like, what do you do? So um, the series of major disasters emerging from 
industrial and other processes that were taking place at a scale that nobody in the public understood until it was too late, mm -hmm. right? That pattern of things from Deepwater Horizon, Fukushima, financial collapse of 2008, Elizo Canyon leak, um, all of these things have the same characteristic, right? We're doing something. When it works, it works. And then at some point, something happens that causes the disaster to um, become apparent. And all of these things have been at a scale that, while terrible, is manageable. Well, and, right? and the, piece, the piece that we've written about and that you've specifically talked about at some length in various places is also that at the point that it, it explodes in some way and the whole world is made aware suddenly, the vast, vast, vast majority of us are like, wait, they're doing what? What? That's a thing? I, how did? How was this upon the success of which, upon which we all depended for it to just continue to thrum along in the background if they were going to do it at all, how was that allowed to happen without any buy-in, right? And so that, that, it does feel like the AI conversation is like those, right? That like, oh, this, this has been happening and um, this does pose an existential risk and we just didn't know. Well... Unfortunately, the one I left off that list of major disasters is COVID. Right. What were we doing? Gain of function Gain research. Gain of function research on viruses we didn't, you know, have a fraction of the knowledge necessary to create. Mm -hmm. We took something from nature and turbocharged it. No, we were right? just keeping ourselves safe. Right. Mm. And the point is, oh, how bad a virus did you create? Uh, real sucky. <laughs> Not going to get rid of it, but, nope. you know, survivable. Right, mm -hmm. it's a terrible self-inflicted wound. Yeah, but boy, it's well, not it's an gonna, like anything else. It's going to shorten lives, yeah. um, you know. Well, and it, I mean, it outright kills some people. Right? Yeah, it shortens lives, and mm -hmm. that causes death in people, and it may shorten all of our lives. But, okay. um, but nonetheless, that should have been our wake-up call because you know what? It had the characteristics in order to see the puzzle. Right, it was contagious. Right. Mm -hmm. And therefore, a tiny little, you know, you've got a little process taking place literally in a room. Yeah. Right. That results in a little microscopic thing finding its way into a cell. And then the point is, oh, now the world's stuck with this thing. It circulates between people. It evolves on its own, completely out of control. Right. Global well, scale. The, this is part of why origins is so important. These these monsters, frankly, monsters, um, because uh, if the world comes to understand for sure what at this point should be obvious to everyone, uh, this does not have a zoonotic origin, uh, then obviously we shut down gain-of-function research. Right. You should. Obviously. On the other hand, I mean, believe me, we should have shut down gain-of-function research and we should figure out the big puzzle is, okay. As, I mean, like, Obama put a moratorium on this stuff back in, what was it? 2015. 2015, yeah. And, like, that it was, it was, it was not unlike... I think I have not read this letter, but it, you know, the moratorium was eight years ago on gain-of-function research was like, whoa, can we just slow it down seriously for a while while we assess, while we figure out what this means? Well, but it reveals the, um, the elephant in the room, as it were, which is yeah. that you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, mm -hmm. right? right. Gain-of-function research isn't right. that hard. And so... Hey, Zach. Um, the, the fact of 
oh, we've got a process. We are now technologically sophisticated to take a virus and make it infective of humans where it wouldn't be and contagious between humans, etc. Oh, well, that would be pretty useful to anybody who could figure one out and figure out a remedy that only they had, right? Mm-hmm. You know, that uh, obviates the need for militaries, frankly. Yeah. Um, and so... Yep. The question is, how could you possibly have the sophistication to do this work and the ability to control that nobody else does it if you decide it's a bad idea? So the answer is, hey, guess what? Your globe does not have governance structures sophisticated enough to deal with a problem you have now just technologically created. That is not, that's where we are with COVID and other infectious diseases. It's where we are with this AGI thing. And so once again, we are in the position of how do we lock the barn now that the horses have escaped? Right. 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 Maybe this time the, um, the existential risk AGI folks are right. And the point is up, those horses have escaped and there's very little we can do. Mm -hmm. But at the very least, let us understand the lesson of this, which is, you know, the governance structures of the 18th century are not up to the challenge of navigating this landscape. They foresaw a lot of stuff, um, but, but they, they couldn't didn't, foresee they everything. They couldn't foresee this. Yeah. And so anyway, that is a terrifying problem to have. Mm-hmm. And I think people feel entitled to have a solution, right? They felt entitled mm. to have a solution to COVID. And the fact is they didn't yes. have one. Yes. Um, so, anyway, I, that's that's important. People feel entitled to a solution, and there may not be one. And for some people, that's not a possible answer. And so they assert that there is or there must be a solution, and uh, and march on blindly with yeah. that belief. And they think it's airstrikes against server farms um, or something, mm-hmm. right? Or a six-month moratorium, which causes uh, the AGI of the West to fall behind the AGI of the East, or I don't know what. But yep. anyway, I guess at what point do we get to say, you know what? This was visible before, and we are sick of having conversations after the fact, Yeah. right? This was visible before, and... Um, if you are right, and I think your formulation is correct, we are over an event horizon, but it is not the event horizon. It is an event horizon. Mm-hmm. Then we survive this. Do we get now to have the conversation about the fact that we do not have governance structures that are up to dealing with these things? And believe me, mm-hmm. having been through the tyranny of COVID, I am not excited about stronger governance structures, right? I'm terrified by them. Um, you know, what we have is absolutely malignant and we can't afford to have it stronger. On the other hand, we can't afford to have technologies like this when which people are empowered in their basements or, you know, in a building somewhere to unleash things on the world that have profound impact on our, you know, our medical well-being or on our sanity. You know, that's it's not an acceptable world. And so yeah. uh, it's, it's time to get it's time to get smart about the recurrent event horizon problem. Yes. Very good. Okay, finally. Yeah. Um, I realized actually that we have an armadillo behind us and some people object to it. Um, but this is, uh, 
It's a holy arm armadillo. Holy armadillo, yeah, yes, apparently. Um, <clears throat> the um, armadillo, whose scientific name is, and I actually don't know if it's a hard ch or if it's Catofractus or Chetofractus. I'm gonna go with Catofractus velosus. Mm -hmm. Common name is the big hairy armadillo. Mm. Okay, so the big hairy armadillo, um, which lives in South America. There's more than one of them, but the species lives in South America. They have gigantic penises. Mm. And uh, I came to know this in doing research for my piece that I published on my Substack last week on the sleep of seals. The connection may be and indeed should be um, unclear. Yes, it, it is. I promise you. <laughs> yes. This side of the table, <laughs> so point. far, I got nothing. Yeah. Well, okay. So um, I am not now, nor have I ever been a man. Hmm. Therefore, I'm not in actual possession of, of a penis on my person. But as I understand it, and as research confirms, uh, men uh, have erections during REM sleep. Apparently, all the time. Like, all the time. As do all the mammals where it's been looked at. Really? Yes. Erections during REM sleep. All the animals where it's been looked at, with one exception. Oh, I think I know what it is. The big hairy armadillo. <laughs> <laughs> with its gigantic penis. I don't know, actually, that's probably wrong, but like seriously, it's penis. Oh, because it would be a liability. Its penis is more than half the length of its body, not including its tail. Do we know for why? No. Okay. Right. And so, but they've, they've got some weird reproductive stuff. Like they, I, I did not dive deep enough into like what weird reproductive stuff they have. And I think we basically don't know. But seriously, all the mammals that have been looked at, except for the big hairy armadillo, have REM sleep erections. And the big hairy armadillo does indeed have erections during its sleep, but only in non-REM sleep. Wait, 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 wait. I know. <laughs> I'm telling you. So um, here, you can show my screen if you feel like it. <clears throat> here we have the, the paper in questions from 2001. This was not published on April 1st. I know it's April Fool's Day right now, but absence of penile, so paradoxical sleep is just another word for REM sleep. Absence of penile erections during paradoxical sleep. Peculiar penile events during wakefulness and slow wave sleep in the armadillo. Now, it turns out it's not the armadillo. It's just this one species, the common name of which is the big hairy armadillo. <laughs> so good. <laughs> and this is, um, this is one of the ways I amuse myself. Yeah, this alone. is how you're spending your time over the event horizon. Is that it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> or between event horizons. Uh, yeah, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the... Um, I'm going to read the abstract out loud. Okay? Oh, sure. First, the keywords, though, armadillo, paradoxical sleep, penile erections, slow wave sleep, voluntary erections, and wakefulness. Now, if that isn't the best list of keywords for any paper you've ever heard, I don't know what is. <laughs> Who studies this stuff? <laughs> these guys are in um, Buenos Aires. That? They're, these are Argentinian um, doctors and scientists. Here's Good job, thing. guys. Studying yeah. that? Oh, you should check out the methods. Studying that topic suggests that we've got so much stuff wired that I know for sure we know nothing about, right? No, but you're not that guy. Like, we've both studied things. It's like, there, is, all... there is no applied reason to do this, but it's out there. It's happening. I'm interested. Science should know. Now, I don't know if that applies to this question, <laughs> but here's the abstract. It sounds very science. <laughs> The electroencephalogram, EEG, together with electromyogram, EMG, of the, oh boy, 
ischiocavernosis, bulbocavernosis, and levator penis muscles were chronically monitored across behavioral states of the armadillo. Ketopractus villosus, again, the big hairy armadillo, if you're paying attention at home. This animal has a very long penis, which exhibits remarkable phenomena during wakefulness, slow wave sleep, and paradoxical sleep. Again, paradoxical sleep just means REM. During wakefulness, it remains retracted within a skin receptacle. During slow wave sleep, penile protrusion can be observed together with very complex movements. <laughs> protrusion is a non-erectile event during which the penis remains out of its receptacle, but without rigidity. Penile erections are observed only during slow wave sleep. They don't mean they don't get them when they're awake, because that's wrong. They mean during sleep. <laughs> um, it's their second language. That's the excuse, mm. I think. Contrasting with other mammals, no erections occur during paradoxical sleep. During this phase, the penile muscles share the atonia of the body musculature characteristic of that phase, which raises the question, erections are apparently common in all the other mammals um, that have been looked at in REM sleep, and otherwise you have atonia. Otherwise you have an inability to move any muscles except apparently for your penis, if you're that sort of person who has one. <laughs> that <laughs> sort of person who has one. Worst euphemism yet. Non-uterus havers. Non-uterus havers. Right. Some reflections on mechanisms of those penile events are presented. Just got a couple. So... <laughs> Am I correct to Almost undoubtedly, yes. that the method section involves, it's not a platysmograph. Platysmograph? Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't get it yet. What's a platysmograph? It's a, a, a penis blood flow monitor. Oh, no, I think they're just looking. I mean, these oh. they're really big. <laughs> In the abstract, they're doing basically that. No, no, they're doing, um, well, yeah, actually, electromyograms. Yeah. Um, but I think those are, they're getting readouts. They're not, they don't think they have it. Uh, maybe they do. I don't remember, honestly. Um, I didn't pay it. So the results, I love the, the top of the results section. Brief anatomical description of the penis. This description is necessary in order to understand the results. Like it actually should have gone into the methods, but okay. The protruded penis, figure one, is very long. And in specimens measuring 35 centimeters in length, excluding the tail, is approximately 19 centimeters long. Wow. Okay, so one more little section here. We've got, of course, a diagram. We've got, wait, 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 wait. We've got a baculum. A baculum. Yeah. Of course you do. Uh, yeah. I mean, most mammals do. That's the penis bone. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah so, yeah. I'm not, so, uh, but then they all, I like how they introduce language here. The dominant sleep posture in the, posture in the laboratory is in dorsal or lateral decubitus. I looked it up. It's like, that means they lie on their backs. Or they sleep on their backs or spines. <laughs> Come on, guys. Do they? <laughs> okay, okay. I'm not going to... Hold on. I think... Here we go. Erections. Penile behavior. Arch-like erections occur. These are the most impressive phenomena. They were always accompanied by transient extensions of the four limbs, together with slight changes in body posture. <laughs> the penis adopted the form of an arch, concavity downwards when the animal slept in dorsal decum... When the animal slept on its back. They were similar to those observed during waking states in sight of females. I think that's it. Yeah. I think that's all I got. Well, I now know why you didn't tell me this segment was coming. I might have called in sick. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, that's uh, wild. Very strange. Very strange. Again, right? I think somebody needs to, probably in anthropology, somebody needs to study these researchers and see how it is that they arrived at such a topic. Yes. And I mean, there are some notes in there that I haven't shared too about um, some particular erections that the armadillos experienced and, and how they were assessed. <laughs> So it is interesting, though, 
is it not? That's yeah. That that um, a there's been a whole lot of research into under what sleep conditions various species of mammals experience erections. Yep. Okay. I mean, at one level, of, do they of have conferences about that? <laughs> it's probably a, like a there's probably a, a symposium at, oh, at larger conferences. Right. Right. Yeah. The um. Now the, the size sleep, of the conference doesn't matter. These sleep erection symposia. <laughs> it does if you're an armadillo. I guess. I guess it does. So I don't know. I don't know. There's something. There's something reproductively interesting going on with the armadillo. I think genetically, maybe. I think you know the size, the the size oh. of the penis to, to body size ratio. We like, know. We know from the adaptive test mm-hmm. described in. The hunter gatherer's guide. I'm not doubting it's adaptive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, there's a there's a damn good reason for all of that architecture and the um, the pattern of erections during different kinds of. I'm a, I learned something. I learned that armadillos have REM sleep, which I guess isn't that a synapomorphy of mammals, something like that. I think we think it's a synapomorphy, which is to say a um, shared derived characteristic new to mammals, or maybe it's just therians, which is to say all the mammals except for the echidnas and the platypus. Although it may just be that it's hard to assess REM sleep in echidnas and the platypus. <laughs> yes, without laughing, at least in the platypus. I don't know yes. how these people did this work without laughing all the time. Yeah. No, they probably did. I don't think the armadillos were laughing. No. So like, you pulled me out of where and you're right. doing what? No, they have quite the alien abduction story. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And they weren't inside of any females at all. They were just uh, having erections during their yeah. sleep. Yeah. yeah. Well, all right. That's all very strange. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, that is where we have arrived. Yeah, we have arrived there yes. somehow. Yep. Um, I think that's it. All right. I think we're going to do it. We are for sure going to do a Q&A this week. Again, not next week. And uh, the week after that, we will be gone, but we'll be back after that with more Q&A. But if you have questions for us, we will be back in about 15 minutes. You can ask questions at darkhorsesubmissions.com, and uh, we will answer as many as we can get through in um, you know, an hour or less. Should we rename the podcast Between Two Event Horizons? Anyway, think about that. Yeah. Just kind yeah, of rolls off the tongue. Rolls off the tongue. Yes. Yeah. Between two event horizons. I mean, it's not inaccurate. No. No. No, it's not inaccurate. No. Uh, so, uh, until we see you next time, be good to the ones you love, eat good food, and get outside. Try to continue persisting. <laughs> <laughs>